In life, we are constantly faced with multiple challenges and setbacks. And this is how we grow as a human being. You know, learning how to deal with discomfort is the most beautiful thing possible. The whole purpose of a setback or falling down is in order to reach a higher place than you were before the setback. Imagine having to face multiple challenges. Everything from being everything from being bullied in school, learning how to make your own money from a young age, or even even or even making it onto the basketball team, then being dropped because of multiple injuries. But you don't stop and you work your way back and you hustle for the next three years and you make it back onto the team and you start setting all these records and you're being solicited by multiple colleges in order to come play for them. But a few months before the season, you break your leg and all your offers are being rescinded and your dreams dashed. Today's guest is Matthew, the CEO of an incredible startup named Lula. They recently raised $18 million from Founders Fund, Coastal Ventures, Bill Ackman, and multiple others. Now, I have recorded 100-plus episodes with the most amazing entrepreneurs and investors from around the world, and I'm super grateful. But I need to say, this episode is definitely top 10. Matthew's story is all about grit, hustle, commitment, and the power of being ruthlessly persistent. This, this story, this conversation is raw, emotional, and extremely, extremely vulnerable. And it's absolutely beautiful. So I want you to enjoy it. And the way to do that is not just listening to it, but also taking the lessons from this conversation and applying it to your own life. But not only that, to share it with a friend that you think can benefit too. Like I always say, the purpose of two people coming together is always to benefit a third person. And if you'd like to connect, please reach out to me at AffineRamek on LinkedIn. And the most important thing, now don't forget to subscribe to get updates about, about all our incredible upcoming conversations with the most amazing entrepreneurs around the world. Now, this, this message is for all our future sponsors. If you'd like to help us in this endeavor to share stories of incredible entrepreneurs to inspire the future entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs in their journey, please reach out. Hey, everyone. I'm super, super excited today to have with us a very, very dear guest and friend. Today, we have with us one of the co-founders the better looking co-founder of a phenomenal company called Lula. That is L-U-L-A. And we're going to obviously get into what that word even means. But today, it's not only the story about Lula, but it's a story about our dear friend, Matthew, who is the co-founder of Lula together with his twin. Matthew comes from an incredible place, incredible state called Florida. And went in Florida from a small horse farm over there, which we'll get into too. But Lula recently was all over the news with their recent raise of $18 million from incredible investors. But before Lula, Lula had to do a very hard pivot into what it is now from a different company that they, Matthew had to shut down. Today, we are here to learn all about Matthew's journey, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, what it takes to be a real mensch, which I can definitely say that Matthew is. But we're here to learn about all the lessons that he learned that got him where he is today, that we could take that and apply that to our own lives. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Th thank you so much for having me. Hopefully somebody listening can even hear it and be like, 
my God, if Matthew is able to survive that, or if Matthew and Michael were able to survive that, then I'll be able to survive whatever I'm going through too. So uh, happy to be on. Not, not even a question, and I'm sure. And I know this is going to benefit thousands. And Matthew, we're going to go deep, mm-hmm. and we're going to go deep right away. As a, re- mm-hmm. as a religious man, how mm-hmm. important is religion? Not just in your life. What are the benefits you see mm-hmm. that it adds to your life? But also, how mm-hmm. does that play out together with your entrepreneurship journey? Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, it was incredibly important. Uh, coming from a, a, Latin, a Latin household, obviously, uh, you had the typical super Catholic mom, super Catholic abuela or grandmother. Um, so I was constantly around uh, people of faith. And one of the big things that was, that was always a common theme in my house is when things got really tough, just to have faith that if you, just, if you do your best, God will do the rest. And so that was our model throughout everything that we'd done in Lula during the good times. It was, it was have faith that if we continue to do our absolute best and we just continue to figure out how we can survive just one day at a time, if we can just make it to the next day, if we can just do everything in our power, if we can do our very best to survive an extra day, then, then God would figure out a way to do the rest. And whether that was to take us to get a new customer, whether that was to find a new employee, somebody new that can help us just get to the next step. We just had to have unrelenting faith that, that's, that if we just kept pushing something good, was inevitably about to happen. And, you know, it's funny because Mike and I always say, it's like, we had we had ideas of what rock bottom would be. And then it was like, God would see what our rock bottom was and would, be a com- would step into comedian mode and was like, how oh, you thought that was rock bottom? Let me show you what rock bottom actually is. And then he'd take you even, a, he'd take you way below what your rock bottom originally was. But it was, it was super, um, it was super pivotal for us to actually have that faith that, hey, no matter how bad it got, one, we were going to get through it if we just remained positive. And then two, like the way that Michael and I always thought about it was, hey, just makes for a better story. Right. Like nobody ever had a great story that inspired others that just involved one or two rejections. It was like the worse, uh, the worse things got, the more inspiring it would be, the better story it would be. And so like that was the mindset that Michael and I had was just like have unrelenting faith. And then also it's just like everything we're going through is going to make for a better story. Wow. Wow. I mean, first of all, kudos to your parents for, for raising two awesome boys and to your grandmother. Mm. But yeah. you mentioned so many incredible points there, and I'd love to deep, 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 dive deep into each one. Um, you mentioned everything mm-hmm. from, you know, having, obviously, the main point was having relentless faith. And, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. times, you know, from our conversation right before we got into this start recording, we were talking about the fact that a lot of times we think we know what's good for us. But most times we don't. Mm. And you have to have that element of faith within you. But touching upon mm. rock bottoms, you know, you've been through multiple, multiple mm. rock bottoms. Everything from, you yeah. know, your dreams being shattered in high school to be play basketball because of a concussion. And then building yourself up back mm. up from that and going to play in, 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 in college. And we'll talk about those two things in a second. Mm. Um, but what does, give me, uh, what does rock bottom mean for you? What is rock bottom? So like for us, rock bottom was just, I mean, outside of our family, we were very, for, I mean, people always ask me like, is, is luck a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, got a call. Um, but so people always ask me like, does luck play a role in, in your success? And I say, certainly it does. Like, I think one of the ways, like one of the ways that we got lucky is with our family. And so like rock bottom for Mike when I was, the company had run out of money. We had to shut down the app We're in the middle of a pandemic. We had to essentially let go of all the employees um, 
business is obviously a very transactional relationship. So when things are going that tough, really most of the people you associate with don't want to necessarily talk with you or deal with you. During the pandemic, all my really close friends had essentially had to move back to their to their home. So Mike and I oftentimes felt like we were alone in, in the city. Like, yeah, we had our parents, but it's still not the same necessary relationship. Um, at that time, there was a sense of embarrassment. Like, hey, we had worked so hard. We had dropped out of college. We had taken investors' money. And to just see it end like this over a pandemic that we had no control over, it was super frustrating. Um, and like I said, it was a little, we felt a little bit embarrassed. And of course, people will always be able to say like, hey, you couldn't anticipate a global pandemic shutting down college campuses. But at the end of the day, we just kept thinking back like, hey, if we had mitigated risk a little bit better, if we had saved in certain areas, maybe we'd still be around. Um, and so rock bottom for us was literally just losing everything. And Mike, when I knew what it was like to be at the top, like at Lula's peak prior to the pandemic, we had members on more than 500 campuses in all 50 states. We were one of the fastest growing car sharing apps in the entire country. We had raised from some really solid investors. Uh, we had super nice offices in the heart of Miami, had built a great team. And so to have all that loss essentially overnight to go from the very top to to essentially having nothing, moving back in with my parents, we had to sell our car to pay a couple of bills. Like those were all different things that were super tough to struggle with. And that was our rock bottom. Wow. What, what were the feelings that were going through your mind at that time? A lot of it was just like, a lot of it was frustration um, because right before the pandemic had hit, we were growing like crazy. Um, and so it's just like, man, like this, like this is so, like, this sucks so much. Like we had finally hit our stride. We had just released a new app that we had been working in about six or seven months to essentially rebuild from scratch. And so it was just, it was just utter frustration, a little bit of embarrassment as I mentioned for the reasons uh, I stated earlier, but those are like the two biggest things. Um, and then also it was just, we had to give up so many different dreams of ours. Like I had always dreamed of being of graduating college. My parents weren't able to graduate from college. My older brother wasn't able to. Um, and so like, I was always a dream of mine, but I gave that up to pursue Lula. And so like, I gave up the dream of playing basketball. Like uh, we'll talk a little bit later. Like I got hurt and I could have gone in and rehabbed and probably played again, but I ultimately decided I wanted to do bigger and better things. And so when everything happened with Lula last summer, I was like, my God, like maybe I could have still been playing basketball. Like I would have been able to graduate and fulfill that dream. Maybe I would still be like, maybe I'd be in a better financial position. Cause when the company closed, Mike, when I literally gave every penny to pay the employees, we sold our car so we could do that same thing. And so we were left with nothing. So it's just a lot of frustration thinking, what if I had done this or that? Yeah. And those what ifs could kill somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. Your, your mind runs to so many different places. Like, what's if I didn't do this? If I would have made that decision. And if I would have, what's it called again? Just stayed, like you said, just stayed in college, just continue playing basketball. And now I'm in disappointment. Mm. You know, and what happens is we make ourselves a punching bag. We just beat ourselves up for mm -hmm. it. Exactly. And we obviously, we had to learn how to flip the script to say, this is just another challenge, a bump of the road to overcome. But... It just makes for a better story. There you go. This makes for a better story. You know, I heard a great yeah. quote this morning. Someone sent me a quote saying, if you fail to make, if a cake fails, all you just got to mm -hmm. do, now you have a, now you have pudding, turn it into pudding. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, I think, yeah, it's true. And I think that's a lot of the theme of your ongoing life so far. It's like you've tried multiple different types of things and everything, you know, as I wouldn't call it failures because failures are learning lessons, but challenges to overcome. 
and you've been able to make everything into a pudding and now you're making the pudding back into a cake. But mm-hmm. I want to take a step back. And, you know, before Lula, before this incredible, you know, the success story and the reversion, uh, the reversion of the success and everything else you've done, you know, I want to know where was, was Matthew born? You know, where are you from? What, what was your mm-hmm. upbringing like that shaped this incredible identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was, so I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, uh, to an immigrant family. My mom came from Puerto Rico. Dad came from Cuba. Um, on my mom's side, even though she was Puerto Rican, her family came from Cuba, so they had to escape that whole uh, situation out there. Um, and so that was so. Growing up, I had heard the stories of my grandparents and everything that they had to endure, everything that they had to suffer. Some of my aunts and uncles that were eventually became uh, prisoners of war and things like that. Like hearing everything that they had to sacrifice. And so it was super tough growing up and hearing that. But every time I heard that and I compared it to whatever problem I had, it was like, this is minuscule in comparison. How could I not overcome it? And then also just growing up in a small farm, like it was very humble beginnings. So I remember vividly if I wanted to get, let's say, a pair of shoes, I remember grabbing the avocados from the tree outside, driving in the nearest shopping mall and standing outside in the parking lot selling the avocados until I had enough money to go out and buy those shoes or those uh, or that specific toy that I wanted. And albeit, I'll give my parents a lot of credit. Like on Christmas and birthdays, they always made sure we had gifts, but we were four kids. So we didn't always necessarily have everything that we wanted. And so my parents instilled from a very young age, like, hey, if you want it, you have to go get it. And then at the same time, like when we were playing basketball, my brother and I are five, nine, 160 pounds now as adult men. When we were growing up, obviously we weren't that big. And we, we realized that if we want to get playing time on the basketball court, if we want to get playing time on the soccer field, because we weren't athletically gifted, we just had to be that much better, that much smarter about the way that we approach things. So our work ethic really came from that. And like a lot of times you have parents that like to step in and try to fight for their child, where as my parents would, would see it and be like, go, like that, what they're doing is not right, but, but go defend yourself, like go, go figure it out. And so they gave us a lot of they essentially forced us oftentimes to figure out and it wasn't them being bad parents they wanted to set us up for the future and i think looking back on it they did a really uh, tremendous job and and it also came down to like the tough love like in hispanic culture my grandfather worked for the cuban military uh, back in like the 40s and the 50s and so he had a very particular way he was very strict the way he did things and so just growing around that like we would go out onto the farm and I think I mentioned this to, you, this to you on the last call. We grew because we grew up on a farm. We weren't we weren't in the in the house playing Xbox all day. Like when the 360 first came out, we were out on the farm with my grandfather, who used to be uh, I think it was a professor in the military. So he was super strict, and so we had to make sure that if we were putting up a fence for the chickens, we did it in a particular way. If we were putting food out for the horses, we did it in a particular way. And so he was very strict. So structure. And discipline was something that was very, uh, was a very strong theme in my early life. And then, of course, paired that with like, if you want it, you have to go work for it. That combination between my grandparents and my parents is something that I think allowed us to, to succeed over time. Wow. So you, you really learned resilience from a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like you were lacking when you were growing up? I didn't. Um I mean, we had a couple of good years. My dad was in real estate, so we had a couple of good years. Uh, when the recession hit, it hit him hard. And so oftentimes, like, 
I remember one day, I remember one year, my, uh, and this is probably like a very pivotal thing. We went, my parents always try to put us in private school. And I remember one year, the school decided they were going to get a, there were, they weren't going to do hoodies, that they were going to make everybody buy new sweaters. Um, and if you had a hoodie, you had to buy new sweaters. Now my parents couldn't afford the new sweaters. Um, so my mom ended up cutting the hoods off. And so we went in and looked a little ratchet. So Mike, when I would get roasted by all the kids in school and we went to an all boys school so they could be a little bit ruthless and i remember getting roasted super hard and i remember like getting made fun of and that was something that always stuck with me it was like hey i want like it's not my parents fault like i've seen how hard my dad works like it's not his fault we're in this position like but i wanted at that moment i realized like hey i want to put my family in a position where they never have to worry again where they never have to worry about can they afford a hoodie or not for their school and so like it's carried us like that motivation has carried us much farther. Like you hear now in like Silicon Valley, oftentimes people are asked like their motivations. And of course they want to change the world, which we rightfully do too. But at the same time, it's a big motivation for everything that we've endured and overcome is I want to make sure that my parents live a tremendous life of comfort uh, and that they don't ever have to work again. Yeah. Wow. I I'm getting emotional just hearing that story. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah. you know, for any kid that God forbid that had to go through any type of bullying, you know, knows that concept that, you know, mm -hmm. feeling, that, you know, that whole entire feeling. And most times you obviously, you had the maturity to realize it wasn't your parents' fault. But a lot of times kids don't have that maturity to realize that it's not, that, to realize it's not their parents' fault, right? They blame it on the parents mm -hmm. and it starts a whole cycle of resentment. Mm -hmm. But to have that is absolutely incredible and amazing. And your, your motivation you have now to put, you make sure that you're able to provide for your family that no, and to make sure that your God willing, your future kids and everything won't have to go through anything like that is the most amazing, amazing thing. Most amazing thing. Wow. Yeah, and and even like a little step further. Like I remember, they would give us raffle tickets, and it was like, hey, if everybody sells one hundred fifty dollars worth of raffle tickets by a specific date, everybody in the grade gets a day off. Gets like that Friday off. And I remember. Again, being that it was a private school, a lot of the kids can just go to their parents, ask them for the hundred fifty dollars, and they sold their tickets. But like we would genuinely try and go out to like the uh, to the shopping malls and actually try to sell the hundred fifty dollars worth of tickets. And again, like in the neighborhood that we were coming from and stuff like that, like people just weren't willing to buy random lottery tickets for absolutely nothing or raffle tickets for absolutely nothing. So it was very difficult. So I remember one of the days the. Uh, one of the days, like when the tickets were due, one of the teachers said, hey, you guys aren't getting the day, you guys aren't getting this Friday off, and it's because of Matthew Mike when there's another kid. And I remember hearing that in the lit of fire under my ass. I was like, this teacher really just tried to embarrass me in front of all these kids. And of course, all boys school, everybody's giving a shit like, oh my God, we would have had this day off if you guys had done it. And like Mike, when I tried, like we were out there selling in the parking lot and still we couldn't get it done. So again, back just lit a fire under my ass, like, um, that I was never going to have anybody talk to me like them, my parents like that, or even my future family. Wow. Wow. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, we think that we don't show up as the man we are today or the people we are today as just the way we woke up today. We show up with all the previous history that happened to us. All these little episodes in life are what shape us and help us make better decisions in life. And that's essentially what we become and what you become through all these different types of episodes to build up your resiliency, to build up who you are, is how Matthew is showing up today. But, you know, and there's two episodes specifically I want to focus on. 
you know, elaborate on it because, you know, we all have dreams, but, you know, you obviously have this whole entire childhood and, the, the, you know, everything you went through over there and you're building up resiliency. And of course it shows your, you know, your interest in entrepreneurship with it. Like, you know, you want to make sure you're able to provide for your family, which you sold avocados in order to get you buy your own shoes. You sold the, the raffle tickets and you, you're experiencing all that. But also during high school, you wanted to become a basketball player and you went through an injury. Yeah. Let's touch upon that. Yeah. So I was, so I was fairly good at basketball. Um, I had worked my way into the starting lineup for the number one travel team in the country my freshman year of high school. And um, I got a series of concussions um, in a short period of time and doctors told me I couldn't play basketball anymore. And so that was obviously difficult for me because that was my childhood sport. My older brother played it. My twin brother played it. He was still on the team with all my friends. So I still had to go watch him every week. Um, and it was the most frustrating thing because I would see kids on the sideline that they had the opportunity to play, but they just weren't taking it serious. And it would always frustrate me. I was like, man, these kids don't appreciate right. how much, uh, how fortunate they are to play. And then later on, I was able to actually play again. And I got the chance to play again for my school, my senior year. And this was like really the instance where I saw oftentimes what you think is rock bottom or what you think was oftentimes the worst thing for you can actually be the best during the time off that I couldn't play basketball. Uh, I would, I, just, I had missed it horribly. And so I came up uh, and my dad, my parents and my older brothers, they wouldn't let me play because it was doctor's orders. Like I can't get another concussion. I ended up getting six by with just in case anybody's here and asking how many I got. Um, but during that time, I was able to convince my dad and my older brother, I was like, hey, I'll, if I play, I won't step inside the three point line. And so they were like, okay, you won't step inside the three-point line. You're not going to get hit from anybody's elbows. So I, all I did was I got really good at shooting from really far. And so I did that for a couple of years. And by the time I got to my senior year and I had the chance to play again, sure enough, I was a really good three-point shooter because that's all I had done for three years. And I ended up breaking a bunch of records uh, for the school. And I let, was one of the leaders in three-point shooting in the state of Florida. And so I ultimately had a bunch of offers to go play college basketball uh, and even had some opportunities to play at the division one level. And then going before my, my freshman year of college basketball, I ended up, uh, I ended up breaking my foot in a, in a dirt bike accident and just absolutely crushing my foot, destroying my hip, hurting my hand. And so that put me out uh, for the entire freshman year. And during that time I had decided to go to a junior college because I was a bit small and wanted an extra year to develop and all the schools that were recruiting me, the moment they heard about my foot, they were just like, you know what, we're we're gonna go another route in the recruitment. We're no longer gonna we're no longer gonna pursue recruitment of you. And so it was like, bam! I had overcome all this stuff, but um, but this ends up happening right when I was so close to fulfilling my dream of playing college ball. But then I went back and I was like, okay, like how can I turn this into a positive? Like last time I had an injury like this, I became a really good three point shooter, and so there was some silver lining. So for me, it was like how could I find the silver lining? And I ended up being able to, uh, the community college I was at had a really strong honors program. So I started taking a lot of the honors classes, was able to maintain a really strong GPA and then had a couple really close friends who were like, hey, you should check out all these different schools like NYU, Babson, Cornell, Emory. You probably have a legitimate shot to get into with your grades, apply to them. Um, and so the silver lining from that situation was, I got a chance to just solely focus on academics build up my resume too. So in case I ever want to get any job opportunities and things like that, um, 
And so it ended up working out because I was able to get into Babson with essentially a full ride. Wow. Is your story not get any more mm-hmm. amazing? <laughs> I mean, no. this is incredible. Come, overcoming one thing after another, after another. Life is just throwing you constant, yeah. you know, things at you, things at you. And you're like, no, no, yeah. I'm going to build up. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to do this. Okay, if I can't play in the paint, mm-hmm. I'm going to play outside the paint and shoot the three po- uh, pointers. By the way, yeah. next time we go to a basketball game, I'm taking you to shoot the half the half court thing and I'm going to get the money. I will split the money. But, there you go. <laughs> But <laughs> there you go, you 60 40. There you, yeah, we'll talk about it. But we have one thing after another, after another, after another. So you had this whole entire resiliency, you had this built up within you. You've been through all this already, right? You go to college mm. and you enter college. And where mm. is this idea? Which the first, if people are not familiar, you know, Lula currently right now is a pivot from a previous startup. And we're going to talk about mm-hmm. the previous startup right now, how you even founded that previous startup. You know, what was the inspiration behind it? You know, to take the plunge, to jump into college and to jump into entrepreneurship mm-hmm. during college. Yeah. That's funny. We went to, Mike and I both attended Babson, which has been for 20 years straight, I think the number one school for entrepreneurship in the world. But we didn't go there for entrepreneurship. We actually went there because they have a really good program for those who want to go onto Wall Street. Um, and for Michael and I growing up, we thought if you made like a hundred thousand dollars, we were rich. And I had seen all the salaries of Babson students getting onto Wall Street. It was like 150, 170. And I was like, oh my God, if I do Wall Street, if I go to Babson and get onto Wall Street, I'm going to be rich at 23, 24. And so like, that was very much what, the route that we had decided to go. And then when we get to Babson, um, it's a very small town and we were accustomed to being in Miami where places would deliver and you can get essentially get anything you wanted at any time. Uh, in Wellesley, though, everything closed at nine. And so one night we really wanted Papa John's pizza and they wouldn't deliver. And so I was like, you know what? Let's take an Uber. Check Uber. It was a $30, $30 Uber. I realized it made no sense mm-hmm. to take that $30 Uber to pick up an $8 pizza. And so we got Domino's instead, which I despised, but was the only thing that would deliver. And so when Domino's arrives, Michael, my brother, walks outside and he saw the parking lot packed to capacity. And he thought, hey, it would be cool if we could rent another student's car and go pick up the pizza. And so he ends up bringing me the idea and I was like, let's just build it. And so Babson splits a campus with Olin College of Engineering, which is a very strong uh, engineering school for those who don't know. And a lot of the kids on the campus code. Um, So they gave me a bunch of books to read, went to the Harvard bookstore. I didn't even buy the textbooks, they were so expensive. So I would just go every Saturday and just sit for like six, seven hours every Saturday, just learning how to code. And then eventually September, 2018, we launched the app and um, it went crazy. Within eight days, we were a top 100 app on the app store. Within two weeks, we surpassed our year one projections. And uh, within a couple months, we had members on more than 500 campuses. Um, But even that story is a little bit rocky because early on, no insurance company wanted to work with us. We were rejected by 47 different insurance companies. And so we had to tell them, maybe you won't get, maybe you won't cover a random 18 year old off the street that wants to rent a car from another student, but what if they fall within some sort of criteria? And so that's where we start developing this very robust vetting tool, which would go on to be the genesis for what Lula is today, the insurance infrastructure. Wow. Now, even within college, you know, you, so you build up this, this, this startup. Yeah. Are you still attending classes at the same time? Yeah, so I ascended classes for the first about two semesters, actually three semesters that I had the idea. And then I, because I had the idea, like we had the idea right when I got onto Babson. 
And then I ended up dropping out after three semesters. Um, so I dropped out in May 2018, and then we launched in September uh, 2018. Um, and so I spent some time, but even then, I went from being a really good student with basically a 4.0 to all my grades tanking. Um, and so that's what, one of the things that ultimately decided, like, hey, I can't put in all the resources that I need to for school. I'm basically just wasting money. Um, so that I need to put my efforts in elsewhere. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's no doubt in my mind they're going to call you back to give the commencement address, the commencement address at one day and they'll give you a diploma then, so don't worry. But what did, <laughs> but what did you tell your parents then? Where your parents worked so hard. You worked so hard to get into college. You know, you worked mm. so hard for that scholarship. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know what? And you like, you're just like, mm. almost like throw it away. Yeah, so my, I mean, my parents at first weren't too happy. Like my dad, uh, he had he worked a bunch of different odd jobs where like at KFC and I think it was a gas station too, saving up for his first car. And he would tell me, he was like, you really just turned an internship down on Wall Street to do this app. He's like, I loved your mom and I wouldn't have even let her rent my uh, drive my car when I was 20 years old. He's like, you think students are going to let strangers rent their car? And then, um, so that was like his initial thing, but we did a pitch competition like right when we had the idea and the TO fellowship reached out to us and invited us to apply. And then once he, once he saw that, uh, that type of interest. He's like, okay, you guys might have something. And then uh, when we ended up launching, we were in Boston, but here I remember talking with them a couple of times and uh, there was a couple of times where um, the servers would crash. And I tell my parents like, hey, we got way more users signing up tonight than we thought I'm gonna have to get up. I'm gonna have to hang up and go handle that. And so we were fixing the, and it was funny because everybody thought we were a big corporation. It was Mike and I working out of a dorm room and later an apartment an apartment uh, living room but then when my parents saw the traction uh they became super like they're like okay um we get it now like there's actually something here but again originally they weren't too happy because they wanted us all to finish school right and then how'd you get the initial funding for Lula? so we did uh so we did a summer venture program with babson and during that time we had some local press that reached out to us and we had about through that press, like one of the things that people don't realize about Massachusetts, there's a, and the statistics from 2018, so it might change, but there's 114 different uh, colleges and universities in the, wow. in the in the state. There's 50 different universities in a 50 mile radius, and so if you do something that appeases you in just one college campus, you're gonna get calls from administrators all over the place that want to talk. And so we got a bunch of local press and we had about 50 or 60 different universities that reached out to us saying, Hey, like, we want to talk to you guys about this. Um, and so we took that and ran, we started pitching investors and it was still a grind because Uber and Lyft, uh, were, they're planning on going public at this time. So there's a lot of chirping going on about how viable a path towards profitability would be. But, uh, so it wasn't easy to raise money because a lot of a lot of investors were petrified. But we were still able to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars because we had interest from different universities, and then we also had uh, there were still some people that thought, "Hey, Uber and Lyft won't make a buck, so they might end up dying. There might be another company that outlives them, and it could be Lula." Right. How many investors did you reach out to? We reached out to a lot in 2019. So I don't know the numbers from 2018 because we didn't really we didn't really try to raise that much. Like we got a quick like two or three hundred thousand dollars, and it was just my one at the time. So we were able to sustain that for quite some time. And then April 2019 was really like the first time we tried to raise institutional money. 
and like we went to the west coast and um everybody it, everybody loves the story because they tell we tell them like yeah we got a one-way trip to california <laughs> and everybody's like oh my god you guys had so much confidence like you went out there knowing you're gonna raise money it's like no we just we didn't have money to to get a, a return flight either so <laughs> we, just, we can only afford the one way um and then we ended up reaching out to on that trip we ended up reaching out to about 532 investors the first 525 either told us no they took the call said it wasn't a fit or they just basically ignored us investor 526 ends up emailing me back and saying hey can you come i think it was may 12 i tell him no i can't get he's like he was like no i'm getting on a plane this weekend to close the round in boston he's like can you come may 5th I'm like no i'm getting on a plane this weekend and close the round in boston he's like can you come april 12th i'm like no i'm getting on a plane this weekend to close around and if you don't take the chance to meet with me you're gonna lose out on this yeah, okay, can you come tomorrow? I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. So I end up, so they end up sending me the location for the, the next morning and I realize it's an hour away and it's a FinTech comp. It's a FinTech pitch event. And I was like, we're not FinTech. We're shared mobility for college campuses. Like it's going to be a waste of my time to drive an hour. My mom ends up convincing Mike when I'd end up going and Michael goes, he pitches. Mind you, this is Investor 526. Michael gets on stage. They ask him a super intense question that he just he just could not answer. And this was a crowd filled with executives, investors, and, and plug-and-play ventures is like weekly events. And so as soon as I hear that, I was like, oh my God, like, like we're done. Like we're not gonna get funded. And sure enough, uh, when he gets off stage, one of the one of the investors from Plug and Play is just waiting for him. It's like, hey, let's talk. And then sure enough, plug and play would go on to be one of the substantial investors in our that summer. Um, and they kept us there an extra week, wired the money relatively quick so that we can afford food and uh, a flight back and things like that. But they connected us with a number of different partners. And so we were able to raise enough money to essentially keep us going um, from essentially April, May of 2019, all the way through the up until the start of the pandemic. And then it's funny, the, uh, the, the girl that uh, sourced us for Plug and Play Ventures, she now works at Thula. No, so wow. it all came full circle. Wow. Yeah. So she's going to, yeah, she, she's our head of people now. Incredible. Incredible. You just, I'm sure, are you familiar with the word chutzpah? I'm not. Well, you should, after we should Google the word chutzpah. You know, chutzpah is a term of, I guess the best way to describe it is, you know, full of determination and having the, the ability to, re, I guess, to um, push forward against resistance to a certain degree in a respectful but yeah. disrespectful way. Um, mm. You have yeah, that's awesome. You have that. You're constantly pushing forward. You know, you know. Forget about the all the five all the 525 investors that you reached out. You said no, which you, you still kept going. You know, I, I can't even imagine like mm. what's going through your head. Even, most people give up after 20, 25, 30, 525. Yeah. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, the last the last six also said no. So out of the five hundred thirty two, we had one investor that came in, and then for twenty nineteen, it ended up being over six hundred. So I always like to tell people: in in twenty eighteen, we were rejected by forty seven insurance companies. In twenty nineteen, we were rejected by more than six hundred investors. The first five twenty five. Wow. Twenty twenty, we had to shut down the business because of a global pandemic, and. In 2021, we ended up raising almost $20 million Series A. So it's just like a testimony of what 
unrelentless faith can do wow. um, and how far it can take you. Wow. Is there anything that, is, that does not phase you anymore? <laughs> no, at this point, at this point, no. Honestly, uh, the only thing that the only thing that did, and it's funny, um, people ask like, and it's gonna sound very comical, but people ask Mike when I like all the time, like, what was one of the things that kept you guys going? And our office space is in a part of town that we have a lot of people that we knew grew, uh, growing up. They a lot of them live here, and you can actually see the Lula sign at our desk. I mean, in the office from the street. And so Mike and I's motivation was like, we cannot let that sign go down because I do not want people to know <laughs> that shit hit the fan so bad. And so like we would come into the office every day and it was just like, what are we going to do today to make sure that sign does not come down? Wow. Dude, you're amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm telling you, I've, I've interviewed Thank you. hundreds of entrepreneurs and investors from every corner, I appreciate it. any corner of the world. Um, everyone has some type of story similar to yours, but not quite mm -hmm. like this in the sense you went through personal things from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Personally, yeah. you went through professional things at such a young age too, you know, 23, 22, mm -hmm. 23, 24, when most people are just starting their careers, like, you know, like your aspiration was Wall Street, you're just starting the career in Wall Street, we're just slogging away 90 mm -hmm. hours a week. And I'm sure you probably did more as a startup, you obviously do more. Yeah. But they're not going through that thing like I have to pay bills tomorrow for somebody else. I Yeah. The worst like the worst thing of it all was I remember COVID shuts everything down. I think it was May uh, March eleven on a Wednesday. That was like when the NBA shut down. That March eleven, um, that afternoon, I had just gotten the documents um for one of our employees because the court, he had gotten divorced and he was fighting for custody of his child. And he had to prove that he had uh, enough money to, or he was getting paid a, a normal wage so, so that he could support the child. And I remember getting that doc, I remember getting that document. And it was like the moment I opened it up in my hands, I got the first notification that a student at University of Florida had just contracted COVID and that they were shutting down the campus. And I was just like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do now? Yeah. And then that's like, and then that's like where Mike and I have to decide like to sell because that's where we have to decide to like sell our car and stuff to cover a couple of bills for people. Wow. You know, that empathy that you have yeah. is, is, is incredible. Even at yeah. such a young age, you know, only someone that's been through something is ordered to, is, an, is able to experience and really feel for someone else in a real compassionate, real, mm -hmm. real way. You know, selling mm -hmm. your car in order to supply someone else's bills is, is Amazing. So then talk to me, let's, you know, fast forward a little bit. So you, uh, you had to shut down COVID, everything else, mm -hmm. circumstances. What was that pivot process like to what Lula is today? Yeah. So, so for me, I was always the one that managed the insurance side of things. And so it was always an, in, it was an always, it was an industry that I had started to realize early on was broken. I realized like, Hey, the way they're trying to assess risk doesn't necessarily make sense for a product that's essentially never been built before. And so I started to see very much how, how broken insurance was early on. Um, and so I always had insurance in my mind. I always had it in my mind. And so throughout everything, I was always trying to figure out, okay, we've never had to manage claims before. So what process are we gonna put in place to manage claims? We've never had to actually, we never had to do, a, we never had to vet drivers before. Now that we do, how is that we're gonna think about that? 
from a reporting, uh, like the policies and all the usage and all the trips, we had to report all that stuff to the insurance companies and they want you to do it in a manual Excel sheet. Mike and I were getting thousands and thousands of trips. Let's just, let's figure out a way to automate all that or automate all that and put it in an organized manner. It's so like we always knew insurance was super, was a very important aspect of it. Um, and honestly, one of the reasons why most uh, marketplaces like in the mobility space fail, it's because they don't have, because insurance is so expensive, it eats at your margins. And so when everything starts happening with a pandemic, Mike and I were actually trying to think, we were like, okay, should we actually sell the company? Because uh, we had a couple of people that were interested in buying it. And it would have given Mike and I the clout saying like, hey, we just had an acquisition and we would have been able to pay our investors back. But at the end of the day, it was still, we still weren't, we were going to walk away with it pretty much empty handed. And so we end up getting, so we're, we're trying to figure out all different types of things. And we have started leaning towards insurance. And one day we had a call from a group saying like, Hey, we're trying to launch a car sharing program on military bases in Germany and the United States. The insurance carriers want us to vet drivers in a specific way. They want us to administer policies in a specific way. They want us to manage claims in a specific way, but we don't know how to do any of that. Could you help? And at that moment, Mike when I Mike was really light bulb goes off in his head and it's like insurance API. We'll repurpose our software in the way that Stripe provides companies with their payment infrastructure. We'll provide companies with their insurance infrastructure. And so we end up landing this military deal and other companies start hearing that we're providing them with this insurance infrastructure. And so they start reaching out asking like, hey, could you guys help us? Could you guys help us? And so in August, 2020, we decide to essentially start the company from scratch. It was just me and Michael. Um, we raised a, a new round. We raised a seed round of funding from NextView Ventures. But this time we were a little bit smarter about the fundraising. And so we knew how important having strong financial metrics was, especially after the whole WeWork debacle. Um, so we took it to all the investors. We made sure that we should, we didn't show up empty handed. Right. So we had this great pitch about the stripe for insurance, but at the same time we had gone out and gotten letters of intent from about 24 different companies that said, Hey, if we build, if you build this, we'll pay you for it. And we had like $1.2 million in, in contract signed. Wow. So we went to all these investors and told them, Hey, fund us because this is something that people actually want to pay for on day one. And sure enough, people started paying us for it in August. And by November, we were profitable. And so we had ended up raising a decent amount of money with this new traction. Uh, and with this new idea, this new strike for insurance. And we, uh, we hit all the metrics to raise a series A back in December. We were like, you know what, we're on such a high growth trajectory, we can probably get a much better valuation if we hold off until the summer. And so we started off in the car rental, car sharing, providing insurance infrastructure there. And then we realized that the insurance infrastructure could actually be used in a multitude of different industries. Like, and it kind of annoys me now because people are reading about it and they see it and they're like, oh, the car insurance startup doula or the trucking insurance startup doula. Like, no, we're insurance infrastructure for the modern economy. Like the very tools that we're using for the car sharing and the trucking could be plugged into right. any industry. And, um, but when we announced it for the trucking, we had like 1600 companies sign up within four days. Wow. And it got to a point where we were a team of like five trying to manage all this inbound. And I remember one of our investors, when we asked him about whether or not we should raise the series, Hey, he's like, you guys are at a point where companies are literally begging to give you money 
and you can't accept it. Go raise the Series A. And so at that time, uh, there had been tra- there had been word that Lula was growing quick and company and a lot of investors were coming in April for Miami Tech Week. And so it was like a perfect storm. We announced that we were going to raise our Series A. I think it was like April 7. And like two weeks later, we already had the first term sheets. And there was an article that came out uh, last week on Business Insider. Uh, it said we had about 40 plus different VC firms that were making bids. It was closer to actually 50 or 60. Um, and so the uh, it was crazy because two years ago, we sent out God knows how many hundreds of emails to investors and this time out we didn't send one single outbound email and we met with all our dream investors and they had all reached out to us. So it was a very different story, but for any founder that's listening, traction and revenue will change your life. Like if you ever read an article or a blog or anything, giving tips on fundraising and it doesn't mention revenue or traction, like just disregard anything else they tell you. Like the pitch deck doesn't matter. Uh, it kind of does, but it doesn't nearly matter as much as the revenue or the traction. Right. Wow. I, you know, especially now, you mentioned two good points. I mean, coming to investors with LOIs already, you know, so that way it gives you the, the, the effect of having, you know, revenue ready to be coming as soon as you're ready to build up. Mm-hmm. But also, especially now, when, you know, it's raining, raining money. I mean, it's like Vegas all over the mm-hmm. startup land. And where people are, mm-hmm. founders are very much like, they see competitors raising money or companies startups with a product that are having a hard time raising money and startups with just a pitch deck are having an easy time raising money. It's, it could be very mm-hmm. easy to get, you know, people down and, you know, to have mm-hmm. all those feelings over there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, it's funny. I still can't walk Shark Tank because I see people like on Shark Tank doing really well and I sound like an idiot now because we've raised almost $20 million, but like it still gives me anxiety seeing them. And uh, so I can just imagine the founders that haven't necessarily actually raised money. And like my message to all of them is fundraising isn't by any means nor- a normal situation. Like if you look at the statistics, there's God knows how many millions of companies, but only a few thousand actually gets a series A and they get substantial funding. The only thing is it's very amplified. Right. So it seems like everybody's getting money when in reality is it's still a small minority. And so I, that's one of the things that I tell people all the time is like, you have to be a student of startups. You have to go out and listen to the podcast of how I built this of Joe Gebbia, Brian Chesky, or you have to go listen to the podcast of Travis Kalanick, uh, Melanie Perkins, uh, Whitney, uh, Whitney from Bumble. Like you have to realize how normal the struggle is early on. You can't just listen to all the headlines because you are going to, it's going to drive you crazy. It's going to make you feel like absolute shit and like you're not doing anything. When in reality, that $30 million Series A, that $40 million seed round, those things aren't normal. And so you have to stop acting like they are. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And by the way, all those incredible people you just mentioned, there's no doubt in my mind you're, gonna, you're going to be there very soon too, together with them. Um, mm-hmm. not, even, not even a question. Don't forget <laughs> me. Don't forget me then. Yeah. But mm-hmm. what... You know, we, we, we spoke, we touched upon so many in, in, incredible things. Everything from, from your motivation, your personal motivation, your, your um, financial motivation, to what, you know, everything from you know, going through the hard times, the challenging times, the waking up in the morning, not knowing what's going to happen that day and how you're going to pay your bills. Hey, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm a speechless. 
I'm absolutely speechless. Like just hearing all this is is is, is amazing. I mean, this is obviously this is a story that's going to inspire thousands. This is a a real you know mm. forget about the founding startup story, just the story of mm. life. Yeah. Story of mm. life. What what's your what is your you know your 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 I guess your process <laughs> for for personal growth? For me, it's just like. I very much am of the mindset that it's that failure is only a mistake you don't learn from. And so with that mindset is like, no matter how bad a situation gets, like people can call, like people can call me a failure because we have to shut down the app. And I'll tell them rightfully so I didn't fail at, at, make, at launching a car sharing app. We got a, We got a lot of traction at the end of the day. Like <clears throat> things just didn't work out because who was going to know there was a pandemic coming. But at the same time, I learned so much from that that I'm going to be able to build a business that I genuinely believe will be as big as the Amazons and the Apples of the world. I'll be able to not only take care of my family, but I really do think that we're democratizing insurance in a way where it's going to be much more affordable and accessible for a lot of people. And so like, call me a failure if you want for what happened with Ludo 1.0. At the end of the day, I learned from those mistakes and ultimately that's what's going to allow me to be successful. And that's a mindset that I've taken into everything that I've done. And every time something hasn't worked out, every time I felt like I was screwed over, something much better has been on the horizon. And a lot of times it's because I've always tried to find the silver lining and ways that I could learn from those situations in which I might have been screwed over. Things may not have gone my way. And it's something, it's a mindset that I took in sports. It's a mindset that I took in my academics. It's a mindset that I've taken in my professional career. And it's one that's worked out very well. And I think that it's one that, will work out for anybody who who implements it. Right. Because if you're constantly learning, then you're constantly adapting. And if you're constantly adapting, then there's nothing that can kill you because you'll be prepared for everything. Right. 100%. You know, when one door closes, another door opens up. You know, a lot of times we think, you know, especially Absolutely. now when a lot of people are still losing their job, unfortunately, or people, you know, relationships go sour or um, things just mm-hmm. don't go our way. You know, we fall into a mindset, you know, in the pity mindset. Why me? How come me? And this and that. And what's going to happen next? Having that mindset, find the silver lining. Look what's out there. Look, you know, maybe you you were saved from something. Maybe there's just another opportunity mm-hmm. right around the corner that's just waiting for you to open your eyes and to grab it and realize the opportunity over there. There's always something out there. It's just a matter of like, you know, obviously recognizing it, opening up our eyes in order to grab it, that they feel it and everything. What do you? I'm assuming you probably get spoke. You get, you get you know asked to speak multiple times to younger boys and girls or mm-hmm. to other people. But besides the message of silver mm-hmm. lining, what else do you tell them? I tell the first thing I always tell people is like, and this is kind of a contrarian thought, but don't start a business just because you want to. Start a business because you find a necessity, or be better said, don't be an entrepreneur, be a founder. Mm-hmm. Go out and find a problem that needs a solution. Find that solution. Find a way to distribute it, distribute that solution to find other people that have that problem. And so I think my biggest thing to founders, oftentimes, if you look at the statistics as to why there's so many businesses that don't succeed, I always think to myself, I wonder if they actually did a market analysis. I wonder if they actually did uh, market research and, and put together a proper business plan. And the reason why it's so important is, one, it's going to make you think of a lot of different things that you would have never thought of going to save you a lot of heartbreak if things don't work out because at least you'll know hey i did the homework i didn't go into this kind of blindly and then two it's just i think oftentimes young people forget just how young they are like i see my friends now 22 23 24 years old and 
It's like they're having these existential crises trying to figure out what they're going to do mm-hmm. with their life. And tell them, it's like, hey, the average person takes four years to complete their six-year degree. Like, you graduated on time. You're already ahead of the curve. Right. And then also, if you, let's say you do take six years, like, hey, you got a degree that's better than a lot of people. And let's say you don't necessarily go the route of school, but you, you have a job. It's like, hey, most 23, 20. Yeah, and most of them just don't realize how young they are. So that's like, that's one thing I would tell them, like, be very cognizant of how young, you're, how young you are. Um, and then two, like, because people don't realize how young they are, they also don't realize, like, how much time they have to just learn. Like if you're 22 years old, you can literally spend five years learning under somebody else. Right. And you're going to probably find a much better opportunity if you take adequate amount of time. And two, you're going to be much better suited for it. And you're still going to be in your 20s. That You can go do some really cool stuff yeah. uh, and still be super young. And so patience. Patience is just one of the most important thing. One of the most important things you have to preach to young people or just everybody overall. For sure. And especially now when we live in a society where it's all about you know, right now, instant gratification, instant this, instant that, to learn to have that patience. And not just for, obviously, yeah, specifically younger people, but older people too. If you look at the statistics, more, the most successful founders are people that usually start up a company at 44, 45, when they're much older. So to have that is yeah. so important. What do your parents say now? When they go back and they see everything you built and everything is happening, what do they say? I mean, they're very, they're very grateful. Um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the success that Mike and I have had is because we we come across very good people who have been able to guide us. Like, I come from a family that I come. My mom was a third generation uh, horse breeder. She was a she was an horseback riding instructor for children with special needs. Like, we by no my my dad did real estate. We were by by no means meant to be tech entrepreneurs, meeting Coastal Ventures, Founders Fund, SoftBank, Bill Ackman, all these different people. Like Michael and I had absolutely no connections when we came into the industry, but because we had a couple of people that saw us hum, uh, hustling, they decided to take a chance on us. And so my parents are obviously very proud of what we've accomplished, um, but they're also very grateful for the people that took a chance on us when when we were just two scrappy kids with, with nothing but an idea behind us. Wow. So then what do we tell young Matthew that you know, leaving Babson, if he goes through Babson, he doesn't go through Babson, young Matthew at 20 years old, 21 years old, facing the rule for the first time. And he has a chance either to go play basketball in Europe or and eventually make it to the NBA. He has the ability to, you know, become a horse breeder somewhere or maybe just yeah. work in the local cafe or, and, or go ahead and start a startup. What message do we tell him at that age? I would tell him find what he wants to do in life and just pursue it in a ruthlessly persistent manner. Like people love to talk about how some people are born into privilege and the wealth and how they have certain advantages. And of course they, they do rightfully have certain advantages. But I think one thing that, that people really underestimate is, is the power of ruthless persistence and how that will take you much farther than any amount of money, any contacts. Uh, and it'll, it'll take you farther than anything you can possibly imagine. And if you look at Michael and I's story, Michael and I are somewhat average of intelligence. Every startup's gonna have people that are really smart. Every startup's gonna have people that work hard. But if you talk to Mike, when I think the one thing that really allowed us to get to the point where we're at today is just being ruthlessly persistent in all that we do. And so I would tell 20 year old Matthew, it's just like, promise yourself one thing. And it's that whatever you decide to do in life, you're gonna pursue in a ruthlessly persistent manner. Wow. The power of being ruthlessly, ruthlessly persistent. That's what we're gonna name this talk. 
And it's a the, the theme that I think we're going to continue to live by. Matthew, I have learned so much from our conversation now, and I can't believe it's almost up. You know, I literally just felt like a minute. And the power of ruthlessly persistence and looking at the silver lining of every time you go through a challenge and how to flip the challenge into an opportunity for your personal growth and your professional growth. There's no doubt in my mind you're going into big heights. And, you know, I obviously go without saying I'm here for, for Lula, for yourself, anywhere possible. But, you know, I wanted to wish you a ton, a ton of success from the bottom of my heart for every single aspect and personal, professional, because I know you're going to do it. And I know when good things happen to good people, which is the case over here, it's amazing. And you're going to do a ton, a ton of good. And you're going to make a massive impact in this world. So thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate you for having me on. It's been a pleasure.